We've always been here every single year. From ancient days right up to today, see history is queer. Some think it's a new way, but we've got something to say. History is very, 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 very gay. Hi, everyone. Welcome to. A little mini-sode, and I promise that it's actually going to be a mini-sode this time. We promised this in our last episode, Stealing Hearts and Horses, Trans Vagabonds of the Wild West. Well, we have more trans vagabonds that we didn't get time to talk about in episode 32, so I'm gonna tell you a little bit about some of our faves that didn't make the cut. But first, before I get into that, I've got an announcement On October 7th at 12 p.m. Pacific Time, I will actually be co-moderating and part of a virtual conversation on queer history podcasting with some really wonderful and amazing other podcasters. This is going to be an event hosted by the GLBT Historical Society. I'll be joined by Eric Marcus of Making Gay History Podcast, Alice Y. Hom of Historically Queer, and our good old Australian friends Alice McInnes and Jason Best over at Queer as Fact. It's going to be a free event, so grab a ticket ASAP, and if you feel like throwing a few bucks towards the society, it'll be extremely appreciated, especially as we've been trying to recover from closure because COVID. So to get tickets, you can go to glbthistory.org slash events to find the link to register, and we've also tweeted about it with the direct link if you follow us on Twitter. This will be the first of two conversations with another one in November featuring Ben Miller and Hugh Lemmy of Bad Gays Podcast, Morgan M. Page of One from the Vaults, and Sally Chum, the host and executive producer of Afroqueer Podcast. So I really hope that we'll get to see some History is Gay listeners in the comments for both convos, and I'm excited for you to join us. So with that, let's, uh, let's get into some fun trans vagabonds that we didn't cover in our last episode. So first, we're going to start off with Joe Monahan. He was born around 1850 in Buffalo, New York. He was raised in a foster home from the age of eight and left to head west at 14 years old. And accounts after his death actually claimed that Joe's mother dressed him in boys' clothes as a child to sell newspapers on the street, which I love. Like, this just adorable little trans newsboy. I'm just, like, thinking of newsies and all of beautiful trans headcanons around that. Uh, around the age of 17, uh, he appeared using the name Joe in Silver City Mining District of Idaho, and he was later known as uh, Little Joe Monahan. He worked as a prospector, a bronco buster, a sawmill operator, sheep herder, cowboy, and a cattle rancher. All of these folks, I mean, because they're like kind of on the margins, they just work a lot of jobs, which is really interesting. Around the time of his death in 1904, his assigned sex was discovered, and it kind of swept the newspapers like we saw with several other folks. What I really wanted to get into is kind of the way that 
folks who knew Joe talked about him. So we have uh, a couple of quotes from W.F. Schnabel, who was a cowboy contemporary of Joe's, who actually wrote about him in a letter to the Buffalo chief of police trying to locate Joe's next of kin after his death. And this is really wonderful that shows how much he was loved in the community. The quotes, and we haven't changed any pronouns here, this is just straight from it. He had fought his way through with many of us, suffered hardship and hunger in early days, and never whimpered. The cowboys treated him with the greatest respect, and he was always welcome to eat and sleep at their camps. It was always surmised that Joe was a woman. Evidence from the 1880 census gives us a little bit more information on Joe as well. He was living in his uh, family's house, and it was actually listed as Joseph Monahan's, and his sex at that time was recorded as male. However, next to this entry, it was penciled in doubtful sex. And again, another quote from Schnabel, No one could vouch for the truth of it. He never would reveal his identity, and all cowboys respected him. He was a small, beardless little man with the hands, feet, stature, and voice of a woman. He never told a word to his best friends who he was and what he was. Throughout his letter, Schnabel continues to refer to Joe by his chosen name, and he, him, his pronouns, even now that the, quote, long and deep mystery was cleared up. From the start of his letter, he writes, Dear Sir, There died near here a little man who has been known by all frontiersmen, such as miners and cowboys, as Joe Monahan. A little bit about his legacy. Uh, He was actually a huge popular story in Western magazines in the 1950s. And in 1981, a woman named Barbara Lebo wrote a play based on him called Little Joe Monahan. And then there's also a terrible feature film about him uh, called The Ballad of Little Joe that we like to discount because it just posits him as a cross-dressing cishet woman. Go figure. So much fun. Uh, That is The Ballad of Little Joe, J-O instead of J-O-E. Next up, just a tiny little tidbit of someone that we discovered in our research is John Runk. Uh, This was a person who was born 1878 and lived until 1964 and was assigned male at birth. He was, I'm going to use he, him pronouns because that's the way that he referred to himself his entire life and we don't really know much about him. Uh, He was a photographer in Stillwater, Minnesota, who documented thousands of photographs and film reels of Minnesota life in the 19th century. One of the reasons why we wanted to mention him is that that he created a series of images of himself in women's clothing and doing uh, women's work. And one could say that this is, you know, just like a photo project, an art project, um, an art piece, but he had several of these images. And he also remained single his entire life. There's a, a quote from the Star Tribune that said, He never married, but he married the community, and it shows in his detail of his work. He kept going because he knew his work was important. So there's really not a lot that we know about this person, but I thought it was worth mentioning. Just at least you have somebody who is transgressing gender roles in showcasing themselves in traditionally cross-gender, cross-role format. And Peter Boag uh, included him in one of his articles where he's dressed in women's clothing and uh, sewing and you know, he used the pun that he, that John Runk is here quite literally redressing the past, which I thought was really nice. Next up, we have Ray Leonard. And I really just wanted to include this because of one quote. Uh, 
Ray was born in Maine, 1849, and then settled as a cobbler in Lebanon, Oregon with his father in 1889. He successfully passed in Lebanon, Oregon without incident until the age of 70 in 1911 when authorities actually discovered he was AFAB uh, during a trip to the hospital due to illness and after that they tried to force him to wear dresses. He said, fuck that, uh, and continued to wear trousers beneath his skirts. Uh, just be like, oh, you want to make me dress like a woman? Well, fuck you. I'm going to wear pants underneath. And he even said to his his doctor at the time, Mary Rowland, this is, this is the entire reason why I wanted to tell you about this person. Look at me, Dr. Rowland. Do you think I have one feminine feature? So during his time in Oregon, until his outing, the residents of Lebanon fully recognized him as a man. Other men of the community would gather at his shop to socialize and also even joined him on hunting trips. Uh, there's a news article from the Spokesman Review from September 29th, 1911, titled Woman Masquerades as Man 22 Years, Smokes But Never Votes. What a headline, folks. Um, so the quote here is, several eccentricities were noted in Ray Leonard. One of these was that he, and we've changed the pronouns here, never went out of the shop day or night except for meals, and he always refused to vote at elections. Ray Leonard talked and walked like a man, smoked a pipe, and chewed tobacco. Next up, Bert Martin, born 1879 in Missouri to Samuel and Doni Martin. He actually fathered several children and may in fact have been intersex, and it was documented that he had ambiguous genitalia. Various penitentiary documents note about it, and newspaper articles allude to it. Uh, we know that he was arrested in Oklahoma City for, oddly enough, impersonating a woman, and then in Colorado for impersonating a man. Make, make, up, make up your mind, shitty gender policing police. Uh, that just reminds me of Mrs. Nash being, uh, accused of impersonating a man early on. He was convicted of, what else, our favorite crime from these trans vagabonds, horse stealing, in Nebraska in 1900, and ended up in a state penitentiary and was actually sent there as a man. And then we have a quote from Bogue again. A few months later, a cellmate who had become suspicious of Martin's physiology whispered his doubts to a guard. Authorities examined Martin and declared him a female, but were never quite convinced. Upset by Martin's ambiguity, the Nebraska governor commuted his sentence, declaring the state's charge, quote, a sexual monstrosity unfit for association with men or women, which is real gross. And so at that time, he was, uh, I believe, then transferred to a women's prison. One of Martin's cousins in Nebraska confirmed that although the family raised Bert as a female, during his younger years, he also, quote, had many attributes of a male person and other peculiar characteristics. And then the second to last person we're going to talk about is Joseph Lobdell, who was actually one of the more well-known female-to-male cross-dressers from this time. He was born in 1829 in upstate New York and was forced by his family to marry a man named George Slater early on. Uh, George would later die in the Civil War. In Bambi Lobdell's chronology of Joe's life, and she's a like a second cousin twice removed years and years later, she writes... And these, uh, these pronouns and name have been changed. Quote, 
The marriage is a rocky one. Joe is educated and passionate about theological discussions. George is illiterate and not very religious. But the biggest issue is that Joe refuses to be a passive, obedient wife. He openly disobeys his husband and frequently argues with him. He had a daughter with George, but by the time she was born, George had actually left and Joe returned to his parents' house. By 1854, we learn that he had already assumed the name Joseph and moved to Bethany, Pennsylvania, and started a music school where one of his students fell in love with him and they decided to get married. However, tragedy would strike and his assigned sex was discovered the day before the wedding and, quote, Popular indignation ran high, and a party of young men decided to tar and feather the teacher and ride him out on a rail out of the place. Fearing for his life, he fled, and this started a pattern of moving around town to town, just continually kind of fleeing, uh, as we see with most of our folks here, really kind of, you know, living on the outskirts. And eventually, he ended up in Minnesota territory and started making a living as a hunter and trapper. In Meeker County, Minnesota, he actually became known as the slayer of hundreds of bears and wildcats, which I love. Uh, in 1858, he was arrested for, guess what, impersonating a man, and taken back to upstate New York, where he ended up in the county poorhouse. Soon after, he met a woman named Marie Louise Perry, who was a wealthy young woman who was running away from her family. She helped Joe escape his situation, and they got married soon after, and again continued the pattern of moving from town to town, and sometimes even basically the only place that would offer them refuge was the woods and the wilderness. A New York Times article in 1877 described their relationship as a mountain romance, or a strange love of two women. On October 7th, 1879, the New York Times reported his death with the headline, Death of a Modern Diana, referencing his prowess as a hunter, you know, referring to him like Artemis or Diana. But, uh, Joe was not, in fact, dead. Unfortunately, his family had pretty much told everyone by this point that he was dead, kind of just disowned him and told everybody he had died, and thus the obituary. By the time of this obituary, the census records show that he was living with his brother, John, incognito until about 1880 when his brother decided to be real shitty and took legal action to have Joe declared insane and committed to an asylum. He was sent to New York's Willard Asylum for the Insane in October 1880, where he then continued to wear men's clothes and insist that he was a man. And while there, a doctor actually published a paper, I would say, you know, a quote-unquote scientific paper, uh, but it was really just garbage. But it was based on his observations and conversations with Joe, titled A Case of Sexual Perversion. This was published in 1883, and a quote from it is, and I've changed the pronouns here, he believed himself to possess virility and the coaptation of a male, that he had not experienced connubial contact with his husband, but with his late companion, nuptial satisfaction was complete. In nearly his own words, I may be a woman in one sense, but I have peculiar organs that make me more a man than a woman. The doctor, hearing this, examined Joe and noted that he had been, quote, unable to discern any abnormality of the genitals. Unfortunately, Joe was transferred in 1890 to another asylum where he lived out his last days until he died, for real this time, in 1912 at the age of 83. So, yet another person that, unfortunately, was deemed 
dangerous or uh, insane, to use their nomenclature, simply for, you know, living outside of assigned gender roles, which is shitty. But I wanted to I wanted to end on the delightful story of someone named Jean Bonnet or Bonnet, uh, who was just like a badass. So Jean lived from 1849 to 1876, was assigned female at birth, and was born in Paris, and ended up moving to San Francisco with his family as part of a theatrical troupe. By the time Bonnet was 15, he was consistently in trouble for fighting and for petty thievery, and so his parents decided, well, nope, here we go, we're gonna put you somewhere that you're gonna learn, and he was placed in a reform school, one of the first reform schools in San Francisco. As an adult, he was arrested several times in San Francisco for dressing like a man, which of course then made its way to the press. There's a, a quote from an article, The Forgotten Trans History of the West, that says, quote, Though Bonnet explained this sartorial choice as a career choice, they worked as a frog catcher, a job that simply could not be done in a dress, which I, which I love. Uh, they wore men's clothing throughout their life, suggesting a motivation more personal than a paycheck. So I'm cool with he, him, or they, them pronouns. One of the reasons why I'm saying he, him is uh, according to a couple of newspaper accounts that I will quote for you right now, Bonnet was quoted as having, quote, cursed the day he was born a female instead of a male. And also, the police might arrest me as often as they wish. I will never discard male attire as long as I live. Which is almost word for word the same quote that Harry Allen said about, you know, never taking off men's clothing. The reason why I wanted to include this person, other than the delightful, uh, he was a frog catcher, a job that could simply not be done in a dress, which apparently frog catching was a thing that you could get paid for. He would catch them and then he would sell them to French restaurants in downtown San Francisco, which is, I mean, talk about opportunistic. Uh, but speaking of opportunistic, he was a fucking badass. Uh, apparently in 1875, he started visiting brothels and convincing the women there to leave sex work to start an all-female gang. Uh, they made their living shoplifting and just generally kind of, like, causing mayhem around town. I love this. I love this. I want to see, like, a cool play about these body like former sex workers in a gang in 1800 San Francisco please somebody make it he died on September 14th 1876 in San Miguel a town just outside of San Francisco where he had actually moved with one of his gang members Blanche Buneau he was actually killed while laying on the bed waiting for Blanche, and he was hit by a shotgun blast that came through the window. There's speculation, and it was pretty much determined uh, that the shooter was either a jealous ex-lover or perhaps a former pimp angry at Blanche for leaving the profession and wanting to kind of like make an example out of her for the other girls. What is delightful about this this tragic ending, though, is that apparently a huge amount of sex workers in San Francisco's red light district came out in mass for Bonnet's funeral. So it really showed how much of a feature and important figure in San Francisco was to the women of the red light district. And with that, that's all I have for you. Just a just a quick little tidbit, you know, twenty minutes. 
of me just telling you a little bit more that we cut from our outline because I could not go forward and not tell you these stories. And they're unfortunately not enough to, you know, each have their own episode on them. So I hope that we can do more of these in the future. Folks that we won't be able to do a full episode about, but maybe we could do little minisodes telling you about them. I don't know. What do you think? We'll see you in the feed for our next main episode. Until next time, stay queer and stay curious. Thank <laughs> you.